You've probably watched those shows on HGTV, just like I have, and thought to yourself, I, I could do that. I could do that. I mean, they make it so, so simple, right? Like, I, I could do that. I'm smarter than that guy, right? And if you're watching it with your parents, your parents are like, please, right? Or maybe you're sitting next to your spouse and they looked over at you and said, please, right? Because you've never actually done this before. But you thought, I can do that. Like, I'd, I've watched this show enough. I think I could do that. But then there's a doubt that pops in your mind and says, I'd, I'm not 100% sure that I think I can do that. Maybe I can, maybe I cannot. But you're, go you're going to feed those doubts information. If you feed the doubts that you have on whether or not you could do what they're doing, steps and stories of success, then you'll probably be more likely to try to do what they've done in the show. If you're feeding those doubts stories of fear and failure, then you're going to be less likely to try what you just saw them do on that TV show. And that makes sense. I saw this played out in the life of my oldest son. We were watching Secret Life of Walter Mitty when he was in high school, and he loved the show, and it involves Iceland and some adventures that Steve Carell's character goes through in the show. And he says, I'm going to do that someday. And my wife and I were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah go for it. Right? Thinking there's no way in the world that he's actually going to follow through on this based on our previous experience with him. But sure enough, after his sophomore year of college, he talked, I want to say, five or six of his buddies into spending money. And all of them traveled to Iceland together. And they camped around the island and went to the Blue Lagoon and all those other cool stuff. They got some great, some great pictures. It was, it was an awesome trip. But he ended up taking the trip that my wife and I didn't think he would take because we were feeding our doubts one set of information. He was feeding his doubts a completely different set of information. And because of that, he ended up doing something that we were not expecting him to do. Based on that experience, the next summer, he goes to India for two months to work at a nonprofit that helps women in Calcutta get out of human trafficking and go back to their families. He calls us at 3 a.m. from Qatar, panicked because his next flight leaves in 20 minutes and he can't find where to go because none of the signs are in English. I say to him, of course they're not in English, dude. You're in Qatar. They don't speak English there. Just go find your group leader and ask him and he'll tell you. And he says, I don't have a group leader. And I said, what do you mean you don't have a group leader? He said, I didn't come with anybody. I said, I thought you're on a college trip for your residency. He said, no, it counts as my residency, but it's not a college trip. I said, who came up with the idea for this trip? And he said, I came up with this idea for this trip. I said, how did you find them? And he said, I Googled them. I said, are they even real people? So <laughs> this whole conversation is happening, happening at three in the morning. And the more I hear from him, the more the stories of fear and failure are feeding into the questions and the doubts that I have on his success. And the more he's talking, the more information he's feeding his doubts, all these stories of success and all these steps that he needs to take. It's just giving him more and more confidence. I eventually tell him what I told them to do if we ever got, if they ever got lost at Disney World, and that's to just find somebody with a name tag and ask for help, which is what he did. He gets to the airport and there's a stranger holding a sign with his name and he ended up having a, a great experience. But one of the things that I've learned, both from my own personal experience and from this series that we're in called Disillusioned, is that the information you feed your doubt 
is probably going to determine whether or not you land in a place of belief or unbelief. If there was a formula for this, I think the formula would be doubt plus fear equals unbelief. Doubt plus hope equals belief. And that doesn't mean you should do whatever they did on HTTV. It doesn't mean that you should go to Iceland or spend a summer in India. However, it does illustrate the way that our doubt is influenced by the information we feed it. Now, in week one of this series, we said that doubt is normal. Only rational people doubt. Sane people ask questions before making a decision, right? God's not intimidated by our doubt. In fact, we learned in that first week that God is the one we should actually take our doubts to. And that we should also share this with other people of faith that we respect and admire. Because it's likely that some of the people that we love and trust have also experienced these doubts, have even asked some of these same questions, and have found answers to those questions that we haven't discovered yet. Last week, we learned that the obstacles that we see and the feelings that we have don't necessarily change the facts. It doesn't change the way that God sees them. It might change the way I feel about God or the circumstances that I'm in, but it doesn't change God or the actual circumstances that I'm really in. Each of us needs someone like Joshua and Caleb to speak truth into our lives when we're freaking out. And this week, we're going to see how little faith we actually need in order to experience God at work in our lives. If you've got your Bible, go to Mark chapter 9. There's a statement in this story that is, I would say, the summary of my whole spiritual experience. When I read this statement the very first time, I remember putting my Bible down and just being filled with hope because I thought that all these doubts that I was having about God, about faith, about life, about everything, man, I was, like I felt like my whole world was kind of up in the air. I felt that there was something wrong with me. And to find somebody in the Bible that was actually experiencing the, the same thing I was going through and then seeing the way Jesus responded to that dude, oh my gosh, man, it just, it was like fresh air in a dank basement. And I know I've used that phrase before, but that's, that's how I felt, man. It was just clean. For, oh my gosh, it felt awesome. It was, it was like being in a dark room for too long and then having somebody walk in and turn on the lights and the relief that you feel to see that everything was where you thought it was. is just an awesome feeling. Uh, but the story doesn't start off in an awesome way. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, at the beginning of the chapter, is the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus throws off everything that was restricting the full expression of his deity. Peter, James, and John get to see this. There's a really funny, awkward moment in the first half of chapter 9. But then as they're coming off the mountain, they come back to the rest of the disciples, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 14. Mark 9, 14. When they, this is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, the disciples. And some teachers of religious law were arguing with them, and they're yelling back and forth. 
When the crowds saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. Verse 16 says, what is all this about? Jesus asked. The fighting, the arguing, because he could see that they were, they're all yelling at each other. He's like, why are you guys fighting? What are you arguing about? Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. So this is a dad who's speaking. We're going to see in a minute that's a man. So that's how I know it's a dad. He is possessed, this is the son, uh, by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. We find out that not only is the boy uh, mute, but he's also deaf. So he's deaf and, and mute. Uh, and whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid uh, like, a, like an epileptic seizure. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. What did you notice at the beginning of the story? At the beginning of the story, the focus and the attention wasn't on the father and his son. The beginning of the story starts off with two groups of people who are fighting. The disciples are fighting with the religious leaders. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Jewish religious leaders, believe that to exercise a demon or to cast out a demon, you would have to know the demon's name. So they did not believe it was even possible for the disciples to cast out this demon because the boy was mute. And if the boy was mute, you couldn't get the demon's name, therefore you couldn't cast him out. But the disciples had seen Jesus cast out a hundred demons without ever using their name, so they knew that it was possible. So they're arguing back, yeah, you can do this. You can do this in the name of Jesus. And the religious leaders were like, well, obviously you can't because you can't do this. And meanwhile, there's a dad who doesn't even care about the stupid argument that these people are having. He just wants his kid to get better. That's all he wants. Then Jesus enters the scene and asks the son to be brought to him. So what does the dad do? He does it. He obeys. He he goes and he gets his son and he brings his son over to Jesus. But I'm asking myself, why was the dad still there? Why didn't he leave? Because there have been a lot of times in my life where I was at a crossroads in my life and I came to God or to other people that represented God and I felt let down. And... I didn't get the answer I needed and I got discouraged and there have been times in my life where I said, skip this. I don't know if I want this anymore. I don't know if this is true. It definitely isn't working for me. Well, the dad had every reason to do the exact same thing. Those that were followers of Jesus had let him down like other Christians have let you down. God wasn't doing for his son what he'd been begging God to do for his son, like maybe God hasn't done for you what you've been begging God to do. And, and you go online and there's these people who say this and these people who say this, and you don't even care anymore about all the junk. You, you just need something solid, man. You just, you need a reason to believe. That's what you need. And I love that the dad, even though he struggled, no doubt he struggled. I mean, just a, can you imagine a brokenhearted dad like this? I think it's awesome 
that he just hadn't left yet. So here's what happens. Um, and here's why he didn't leave. Mark chapter 9, verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since my son was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Did you catch that? What does the dad add at the very end of his explanation for what's happening? He says, have mercy on us. And what three words did he just say? He said, if you can. That's what he says. Help us if you can. So does the dad have faith or not? That's the question. Does he believe? If he says, if you can. Mark chapter 9, verse 23. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. So obviously Jesus caught it too. Anything is possible if a person believes. I want to stop right here. Because our faith needs to be dependent on a promise of God. Anything that we ask Jesus said in another passage of Scripture according to his will, we can know that he hears us. And if we ask according to his will, not only does he hear us, but he also gives us what we've asked for. So our faith, our confidence is dependent on what God has said, his intention, what his plan is, and what his will is through the Scriptures. And the reason why that distinction is important is that this verse does not mean Anything is possible if we believe that I can dunk a basketball. No matter how much I believe that I can dunk a basketball, I'm not going to dunk a basketball. Because I'm 53 years old, I'm 50 pounds overweight, I already have one titanium hip from arthritis, and now, this is true, I need the other hip replaced. I'm way too young for hip replacement surgery, and I'm about to have a double. It's stupid arthritis. Um, Yeah, so like no matter how much I believe, I'm not going to dunk a basketball. So that verse is not a promise that Sean Sears is going to make anybody's all-star basketball team. But anybody who has faith, anybody who believes, right, and the goodness of God and the promises of God is going to experience exactly what God wants for them to experience. So he says anything, what's he asking for? He's asking for his son to be healed. And he said, if you believe, that's possible. So your belief in God's willingness to do what God is willing to do, like that's dependent on whether or not you believe him. That's what Jesus says. The father instantly cried out, and this is the phrase that made my heart sing. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That that is a summary statement of my entire religious experience on anything, not specifically spelled out in the scripture. My entire walk with God, like those people that say God told me, and they act with such confidence that God told them this or that. I, I don't One, I I don't know if I believe them, to be honest. And two, if it is true, I'm jealous that I don't have that happen to me. Like, I've, I've asked God to tell me, should I marry this girl or not? Should I take this job or not? Should I quit that job or not? Should I 
go into business with this person? Should I start this other thing? Should I let go of this? Now, if there's clear direction from Scripture, I, I get that. I'm talking about everything else. Like I, when when we quit our my job and my wife quit her job in Denver, and we were moving across the country to Boston in 2001. I remember telling my wife, I'm still only 75% sure we're doing the right thing. Like, that is a su summary statement of my religious experience. God, I believe I'm doing the right thing, but I'm, I need you to help me with my unbelief. Like, I, I think I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm not 100% sure if I'm doing what you want me to do. So whew, here goes, right? Like I'm rolling dice or something. It's, it's like this. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like two weeks ago in this series when I was saying that I was taking my walk with God and then frustrated that God didn't seem to, like I was in that situation where the dad was in where nothing is going right. You're not doing anything for me. My wife had said, feels like we're doing everything God wants us to do. Why doesn't God do anything for us? Like this was this season that we were in and in my, even in my, like, I, I told God, I don't even know if I believe in you anymore. Like, I remember praying that. And the weirdest thing is here I am talking to God, telling God I don't believe the person that I'm talking to exists, but I'm still talking to him. So that, like, I believe, but I don't believe at the same time, right? Like that, man, I resonate with that. And when the dad said it that way, and I read that for the first time, I just remember thinking, Yes, that's how I feel. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a religious author named uh, uh, Don Miller. He doesn't write necessarily religious books. He's a Christian. He owns StoryBrand, and he's a business guy. Anyway, he's also a follower of Jesus. And he wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, and in that he talks about faith being like, and his phrase was, the, actually the chapter five in that book is called Faith is Like Penguin Sex. He says that the, the mama penguins lay the egg and then the dad penguin sits on it and the moms go fishing. And every single mom always comes back on the day that the egg hatches. So they said, all right, does is it always the same number of days? And it's not. Uh, maybe it's the same number of days for that penguin. So maybe the next time she lays an egg. So while all the penguin days are different between when the egg is laid and the egg hatches, maybe it's the same with each one and it's not. It, scientists can't explain it according to this chapter, and he says there's just something on the inside of these mama penguins that won't let them not be there when their baby is born. And he says, to me, that is what faith has been like. There's something on the inside of me that won't let me not believe. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief, is what he says. So is that enough? That's the question. Um, verse 25. So when Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. And the boy appeared to be dead. And a murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus, according to verse 27, took him by the hand and helped him to his feet. And he stood up. So did the dad believe or not? Well, Jesus said, but I can heal your son if you believe that I can heal your son. 
So did the dad believe? I mean, Jesus healed his son, so what does that say? It says that he did, but then the dad said, I do believe, but I also struggle with my unbelief. So what does that mean? It means that the dad simply had doubt. That's what it meant. And it also means that his doubt didn't cancel out his faith. And no matter how disillusioned you have become and the doubts that are creeping into your heart, doubt doesn't necessarily cancel. Doubt in and of itself, doubt for sure, does not cancel out your faith. It doesn't. Because faith doesn't mean that you have 100% proof of something. You don't need 100% proof to have faith. I think the better definition of faith is that faith is trust without certainty. Notice I didn't say trust without evidence. I, I think we need evidence. I think we need to lean on our personal experiences, and I think you need to look at the evidence. What I'm saying is that faith does not require proof. Faith isn't necessarily, I don't think faith is even knowledge. Faith is trust. It's trusting something without 100% certainty. That's what faith is. In, in 2007, after watching all of these TV shows on HGTV, my wife and I did buy a flip house. I saw the Tenango, Montenegro brothers or whatever. I can't remember the name of those guys. And they would go to these house auctions and I watched them enough. I knew how to do it. Uh, there's a guy in our church, his name is Pete Manini. His sister actually does this for a living and I had her on the phone. And I'm in Randolph at an auction for a house that's being has been repossessed and it's being auctioned off by the bank. There's eight other people there. And all I'm doing is everything this girl that I hardly know is telling me to do. My wife and I, we didn't have any cash. I refinanced my house and pulled out all of the equity. And I have a $5,000 cashier's check and 15,000 more. We, the only equity we had in our house was $20,000 at the time. So I fully leveraged our house. If this doesn't go good, I'm going to lose the home that I live in. So, so I don't know who had more faith, my wife or me in that moment, but... I go and we we win the house at auction and I, I give them this check that I'm never going to see again and now I have 30 days to close. And I, I bring in a partner who then makes the monthly payments and then, uh, you know, pays the note, the, the, the carrying costs, and also has the money with his $20,000. We've got enough money to carry the note for five months and we've got about... $25,000 to do all the needed renovations. Man, it was risky, right? And uh, yes, so we, so we did it. I, I never was 100% sure this was going to work. I mean, there's no way you can. Like you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, truthfully, I bought this in August of 2007. I sold it in November of 2007. And those of you guys who are homeowners, and are older, you remember exactly what happened in January of 2008, and that was the housing crash. I got out with five weeks to despair before the housing market crashed. I mean, that could have actually happened in October, and then I, 
I would have lost my stinking shirt. I would have lost, I would have lost everything. But I didn't need like a hundred percent. There's, there's no hundred percent guarantee. I had enough information. I had mentoring from somebody else who had a track record to give me enough confidence to act on what I hoped. See, faith isn't knowing how to flip a house. Faith is purchasing the house. That's what faith is. There's a bit of a gamble in it, but it's not reckless. And the truth is, every single one of us live by faith every single day. You're a person of faith. I'm a person of faith. And every single day we act on that faith. You got into a car yesterday with the expectation, with the hope, but not the guarantee that you would make it to your destination without dying in a car accident. And you didn't. That's faith. Faith is not the proof that you're going to make it. Faith is trust without certainty. It's an expectant confidence of something that you don't have proof in. That's faith. Or you transferred money from your citizen's bank account to your Vanguard annuity with a confident expectation that the brokers were not going to steal your money for themselves. You don't have proof that they're not going to steal their money, your money, or that they're not going to lose it. But you've read the contract and previous experience with this bank has led you to a certain amount of confidence that you don't have proof, by the way, that you're not going to have that money stolen, but you have confidence and you have enough trust to act. And that's faith. Some of you guys might be baseball players or softball players. And now that we're in baseball and softball season, you got on the school bus to go to your next game, not even knowing who that driver was never even seeing them before. You have no proof that they're not crazy. I'm gonna run this whole bus into a light pole. But that was pretty dramatic, sorry. <laughs> My point is, you have no proof that they're not crazy. You don't even know them. But you have enough trust to act. And getting on the bus and sitting down was a demonstration, a demonstration of, of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one says this, faith is the confidence that what we hope for, but can't be guaranteed in, will actually happen. That's what the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things that we can't see yet. Verse six says, and by the way, it is impossible to please God without that, without faith. Because anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Faith doesn't require proof, just evidence, or at least previous experience. And most of your life is lived in faith. We just don't think about it that way. So the question now is whether or not there is enough reason for you to trust. To trust, one, that there is a God. To trust that there is a God who sees you, that there is a God who cares 
what you do next, that there's a God who will respond accordingly to what you do next. It is impossible, according to Hebrews, to please God without this. Maybe if you were raised in a religious context, you remember the story of doubting Thomas. Thomas is one of the poor guy. He doubted one time and forever. That's his name, doubting Thomas. But Thomas was the one disciple who had not seen the resurrected Jesus yet after Easter. And all the other disciples had seen him. And uh, the men and the women had said, no, we saw him, he's alive. And no matter what anybody else said, Thomas said, I will not, I, I saw him dead. There's no way he's alive. I will not believe that Jesus is alive from death unless I can put my hands in his nail wounds and then put my other hand on the, on the wound from the spear. So Jesus shows up and says to no one but Thomas, Thomas, come here, put your hands on my wounds and in my side. And he does. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God to Jesus. That, woo! But then Jesus responds this way. This is in John chapter 20, verse 29. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Why? Because that's faith. Faith is trust that leads to action. How much faith do you have to have to be reconciled to God, to see God at work in your life? Enough to act on what God says. That's all you need. How do I know that the father of that little boy had faith? Because he didn't leave. Like there was enough hope on the inside of him that was like he was feeding his doubt, not fear. There was definitely fear there. But what he was consciously feeding this doubt was hope. Jesus isn't here yet. Jesus isn't here yet. Maybe Jesus can do it. Even if, if these, all these other people are going to fail me, maybe God won't. Maybe, right? But this maybe didn't cancel out his faith because of what he did. He stayed. And then when Jesus said, bring your boy to me, what does he do? He brings his boy to him. Like, that's faith. Faith is trusting God enough to obey what God says. So when the man said, I do believe, but help me overcome my own belief, his actions has already, had already demonstrated that he trusted. Jesus responded not to his fears, but to his faith. And it was his faith, in spite of the doubt, and with the fears, demonstrated by his obedient response to God that healed his son. Ryan is my youngest, and when we were remodeling one of our locations, he was four years old and he was on scaffolding and he was above my head. And I remember it was time, Billy Jane said, uh, can you get Ryan? Oh, we, I need to take him home. So the whole family was there remodeling the building. And I, I clapped my hands and Ryan ran to the edge of the scaffolding and didn't even stop and launched, man. 
And, you know, people were like, because <gasps> he was so high. He was six foot high and he launched. I'm like, I wasn't even all the way over there yet. And he, he launched and I, I caught him. How does a four-year-old boy run at full speed and leave the safety of scaffolding and launch himself into midair? Because he had faith that his father was going to catch him. He was confident in something that he had no proof of. Like he didn't know whether or not I would actually catch him. No one could know. Well, it was his previous experience with me. It was all these other times that he had jumped and I had caught. It was that I had asked him to jump and it was what he knew about me. It was, I don't know if there were any doubts. By his behavior, I wouldn't think there was any at all. This kid ran and launched and truthfully when he launched and everybody gasped and I caught him and he laughed and I hugged him as a dad. Like, it filled my heart with happiness and joy that my son trusted me enough to jump when I clapped my hands. And that's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, that is the only thing that pleases God. Without that, you can never please God. And if you're waiting on proof, you're, you can't. That's not faith. That's reaction. Because faith requires trust. And it is the demonstration of trust that makes a father happy. And that's why God will accept. He doesn't want anything else from you other than trust. That's what he wants. And that's what he's going to keep doing for the rest of your life. He's going to ask you to keep jumping. This is why God asks us to repent from our sins. I want you to let go of this and trust me enough to obey me enough to turn from this and start following me. I want you to turn. This is why he wants us to place our faith and trust in Jesus. It's, I want you to stop hoping that you're going to be good enough to make it. Because if you could be good enough to make it, then why do you need Jesus? You're good enough. And I want you to trust that what Jesus did was enough for you. It's why he calls us to be baptized, to let go and to bury the old person that we were before faith in Jesus. And by faith, we trust God enough to obey God and to do the thing that he asks us to do, which is to be baptized after we've chosen to follow Jesus. Some of us were baptized as kids as a demonstration of our parents' faith. You can't live on borrowed faith. Like at some point, this has to become yours. You need to bring this circle, this picture, this story full circle and be baptized as a demonstration of your faith. But it's also the reason why God asks you to reconcile with others, why he asks you to give generously, to pray for your enemies, to forgive the unforgivable, because every single one of these things require what? Faith. And nothing less than trusting God enough to obey God fills God's heart with joy. Nothing. Nothing makes God happier than when we trust him enough, just enough, to do what he says. And that is when we get to step into the life that God's prepared for us. And I don't know what your next step is, but I pray you take it. So let's bow our head.
God, I love you with all of my heart. And I'm thankful for this dad. And I'm thankful to the way that you responded. I'm thankful that his doubt did not cancel his faith because his trust led him to act. God, I pray that every single one of us would demonstrate that we trust you enough to do what you actually said. So whatever our next step is, whether it is to repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in Jesus to be saved, whether it is not, it is to be baptized or to forgive or to give or to love somebody who is unlovable or to reconcile with a difficult person who's hurt us in the past. Help us to love you enough, to trust you enough to do what you say. And then God, let us experience like your power in our lives and help us to be transformed like this dad and his son. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.